Okay, in the intro. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And every weekday at 4 o'clock, we're here to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions, whatever's on your heart or mind, what we believe as Christians or why we believe it, uh, questions about the essentials of our faith. Maybe you're just going through a life experience that you need a little bit of help with. We'll do our best to tell you what the Bible says to do. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. That's 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free mobile app. If you're driving in your car, use the KSLR mobile app. It is also free, and all you have to do is hit the Call Now button, uh, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. And we really I've, I've didn't get any new questions overnight, so we've got just a few questions. So we're going to need some phone calls. One more time, 340-9585. Wednesday night, we're in Second Samuel chapter 2 tonight here at Calvary Chapel. You can watch it live stream at calvarysa.com if you are interested. Uh, we'd love to have you join us. Um, we're having a great time going through. Uh, we finished First Samuel, of course, but going through Second Samuel as well. Uh, and then, of course, that means the best part about Wednesday for me is it means tomorrow is the date day show. Paula will be live in studio with me on the program. So, ladies, it's your special day. That is tomorrow. Okay, let me get to some questions. Here is a question from Wes. He wants to know, or he says, I'm praying for revival. Do you think one will happen before the end comes? Wes, I don't, I really don't think, and I, again, because I don't know you, I'm not, this isn't personal, I'm not judging you, but I don't think we know how to pray for revival. Uh, I'm going to steal a line from J. Vernon McGee that I heard many years ago because nobody's ever prayed for revival better than he did. He said, I'm going to draw a circle on this ground, Lord. I'm going to stand inside this circle, and I'm praying for revival to start in this circle. Uh, Wes, what we need to do is pray for our own revivals. We need to make sure our hearts are right with God. We need to examine our hearts all the time. We need to make sure there's nothing between us and the Lord, that there's no disobedience, willful or otherwise. Uh, and then, Lord, possibly he can use you, Wes, to start a revival. But the revival has to start with each and every one of us. It's so easy to pray for a revival out there. And by that, I mean away from us, because it doesn't require anything from us. It's almost like we're sitting back and we're just sort of waiting for things to change. We're waiting for the Holy Spirit to make a great move. 
And while we would all love that, judgment begins at the house of God. And we're the ones that have to start. I will say this, Wes. Uh, I've been praying with you for one one more great move of God's Spirit before the Lord comes. I'm convinced personally that he's coming soon. Uh, I don't mean this week or next week, but I mean he's going to come. It'll be suddenly and nothing else has to happen. So I sort of look for him on a daily basis. And that helps me remember to stay revived myself. And I've been praying for this one last great move of the Spirit. Uh, I I told our church, I think it was this past weekend, maybe it was two weekends ago, they all kind of run together for me. But wouldn't it be great if we woke up one day and God's Spirit had moved so powerfully that our prayer lists were wiped out because everybody got saved. You see, when a real revival happens, Wes, it changes things. Revival is not goosebumps at church. Revival is not um, a whole bunch of people coming to church and and you think, well, wow, our church is growing. We're in a revival. No, revival is when the unbelievers get changed. I'll also say this. When and if a revival comes, it is my personal opinion that it will happen in the marginal um, portions of, of our society. Um, when the last move of the Spirit um, in this country I think the last great move of the Spirit was the Jesus People movement uh, of the late 60s and, and 70s. Um, Calvary Chapel, of course, was at the vanguard of that. Um, the people that were revived were the outcasts, hippies, drug addicts, um, people that had completely dropped out of, of, of society, fearful of the Vietnam War, or whatever, but uh, that revival um, dealt with the the people that nobody else wanted anything to do with. And it is my opinion, Wes, that if a revival comes again, it will be uh, within a group of people or come from a group of people that nobody ever would have believed could be saved. One of the problems I think we have in, 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 in hastening a revival in this country is that we still think we're okay. We still think we're better than most people. And I think as Christians, we need to remember who we were before we got saved. So, in fact, Jesus could use us to go get the lost, the hurting, the hungry, the broken, the needy, and the confused. Wes, thanks very much for your question. I hope that helps. Let's go to Mike calling on line one from San Antonio. Mike, thanks for calling. You're on the air. I've got uh, two questions. Um, The first one is, after Jesus was made flesh... Did he have any memories of his pre-incarnate state? Um, and if so, did he have that? Did he have those memories from I think it was early as I don't know, like age three or so? Or mm-hmm. did God kind of reveal what had happened to him um, as as he aged? Uh, and then okay. my second question is: What 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 is the correct doctrine on what how God judges um, children before the age of accountability and uh, babies like you know if, if they die before um, they're accountable um, and where where would I find that in scripture because I know that you've mentioned um, when King David says uh, he cannot come to me but I will go to him when his son died uh, but I, I feel like that's 
kind of just talking about Sheol in general. Um, so if you could help me with those, that'd be great. Thank you so much. Bye. Okay, Mike, thank, thank you for, for the question. Let me deal with the second one first, because I, I think David is making a prophetic statement there. Now, understand that God moves through people and speaks through people who don't really understand what they're saying. Uh, the high priest said it's better that one man die for the world than, than men, all men die. And, and, of course, the high priest was an enemy of God. So um, uh, people speak prophetically. God gets his message out. And I think that is the definitive statement in Scripture uh, that children are going to be in heaven. Uh, he's acknowledging the f- justice of God, the fairness of God. We can also look at Romans chapter 1, where uh, basically the message is that God is fair and God is just. He must judge the world, but he's going to judge the world fairly based on what has been revealed about God. First in 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 creation, um, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day they pour forth speech. Um, because of conscience, uh, the conscience that was written on man's heart pre-law. Uh, we know we've done something wrong. Uh, and then thirdly, of course, by uh, the law. That was uh, Paul's argument to the church at Rome. So every person is guilty and accountable. However, um, somebody who isn't yet accountable, a, a child uh, from uh, a child who's murdered in the womb uh, to children who, who don't grow past the age of accountability and they, they, uh, they're taken with disease or they're killed in a, in a tragedy. Um, and those kids are going to go to heaven. Why? Because we're only accountable, and this is Paul's point in Romans chapter 1, we're accountable not for what we don't know. We're only accountable for what we do know. And it's questions like this, Mike, because there is no specific um, scripture uh, that deals with this issue. This wasn't part of the message that Jesus was trying to communicate. It wasn't part of the message that the writers of the epistles were communicating. It's one of those things that we have to rely on the, the, the fairness of God, the holiness and the justice of God. And it would be contrary to what we have revealed to us in Scripture. Um, and it would be contrary to the nature of God as revealed to us in Scripture for God to judge someone for what they don't know or what they didn't do. Now, I've said this many times before in this program, Mike. uh, Children are born sinners. We look at little babies and we think they are so cute and they smell so good and their skin is so soft. Oh, this is a precious, innocent little baby. They are slave drivers. Ask any brand new mom. The child wants what he or she wants when they want it, and they're going to scream and they're going to yell until they get it. They expect undivided attention. We learn from the very beginning that we are sinners. John, John's Gospel, chapter 3, where Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus, he says, we're born condemned already. But remember, um, before the law, men's sins weren't counted against them as terms, in terms of violating the law. What would be counted is their conscience if a child doesn't have the ability to process right and wrong. And let me expand this just a little bit because it's not just children. Uh, it's people with developmental issues, uh, people who, who, who aren't full of faculty mentally. Um, um, we're only going to be judged for what we do as opposed to what we don't do. And one more time, I think David's statement was was prophetic. I think it was David saying, he can't come to me, but I will go to him. 
I think that was David looking down the corridor of time and space saying, I will see my son uh, one day. And of course, that has already happened that day. So there's nothing specific that deals with it. Uh, you will get a, a reform guy occasionally, Mike, that will say, you know, God knows um, which children we're going to, because he knows everything, which children we're going to uh, be chosen, which children we're going to say yes to God. And so he saves them, but he doesn't save the others. That's simply not true. There's something else I think that helps, uh, and it has nothing to do with this question specifically, but I think it helps us understand the heart of God toward kids. Remember in the book of Jonah? When Jonah was really, really mad that God spared um, um, Nineveh, um, Jonah wanted Nineveh to be judged, and, and, and God says, do you have any right to be angry? And then here God says this, I have 120,000 in Nineveh who don't know their right hand from their left. In other words, Jonah, do you want them to be judged too? They're without guilt. And he's speaking to children, of course. Nineveh was a city of well over half a million people. It was a great city of the Assyrian Empire. And Jonah's response from silence is, no, God is just and God is faithful. So um, that's where we have to rely on the nature and the character of God that has been revealed to us. So while I wish there was a book that answered all these questions specifically, there's not. That's why the good Bible student, Mike, has to really dig in. And every doctrine that we come up with, everything that we believe to be true, we have to let those things um, sort of run through the filter of God's nature, God's character, and what we know. So I hope that helps. The first question is, we, we don't know. Jesus, we know, learned from things was Jesus aware of his pre-incarnate state we know he was as an adult we have nothing about Jesus first 12 years uh, beyond his birth and then he shows up again at 12 and he's uh, in the temple uh, the synagogue and he's reading uh, from the scriptures and teaching uh, and it's useless Mike to speculate on that now we know that Jesus was aware of his pre-incarnate appearances at all because he would say things like father um, uh, glorified them uh, as you've glorified me with the glory that we've had from the beginning. Uh, we know that Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration was was transformed, literally transformed before the, the very eyes of the inner circle of the, of the disciples. Um, uh, he knew, of course, Elijah um, uh, and Moses. Uh, we know that uh, he spoke to his father every night, so there would be perfect communication between them because Jesus, while incarnate, was without sin. So the inference that we can make is that, yes, he was aware. Now, at what age, and I find this an interesting thing to consider, uh, Paul and I sometimes, we just talk about these things. Jesus, uh, he didn't go through the terrible twos. He didn't have any terrible twos. Jesus was without sin because he had no sin nature. Um, but, but imagine... Um, just something as, as simple as, as uh, being a carpenter's son and Jesus picking up a nail, knowing that his method of crucifixion had been determined long before. We, we've got it in the 22nd Psalm spelled out specifically. Imagine Jesus looking at one of those big nails and thinking for a moment, this is what's going to nail my hands and feet to the cross? So there are just some mysteries, Mike, that we've got to be content with. 
And I think the mysteries are the one of the best things about uh, our relationship with God. We're going to have answers and, and specifics to everything when we're with him. But until then, uh, a lot of these things we have to be content not knowing the answers to and, in fact, sort of majoring on the, the, the issues we do have answers to. And, and while it's great to wonder about these mysteries, I don't think it ought to be necessary to solve them. So, Mike, I hope that helps. It's the best I can do. The fact that God, Jesus Christ, learned things is an amazing concept to me. How does God learn anything? Well, we know that Jesus willingly, from Philippians 2, set aside his deity. He emptied himself and became nothing, a a human being who was doomed to die the most despicable of deaths. It's just an amazing thing to think about. We just have to focus on other things to be sure we don't miss out. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate the call. 340-9585. Here is a, uh, I call it a cute question from Jesse. Um, Jesse says, I've been saved for almost two years, and I keep waiting for God to tell me what I'm called to do. Why is he taking so long? I'm excited to get started. Jesse, we're all excited to get started, and don't ever stop. Don't ever stop. But two years means nothing. Two years, you're just beginning this wonderful friendship, this relationship with the creator of your soul. So two years is, is just, it goes by in a second. So what we need to do is exercise patience. Now, I know that's hard, but here's what I want you to understand. It's in those times when it might seem to you like God is doing nothing. What's in those times that he's doing the most? Because he's beginning a transformation process. You know, I got saved, and four years later, I was here in San Antonio, Texas, to plant a church, to start a a church as as the pastor. Uh, I was an older man at the time. I I was uh, uh, 40 years old, just short of 40 years old when I got saved. And I'd wasted so much time, I was just like you. But but because I was older, I had some life experience, a little more mature, at least in, in the ways of the world. Um, Jesse, I, it took for me three years before I felt like I was out of the wilderness. And it was in those three years when Jesus would daily reveal himself to me. And Jesus would daily give me the opportunity to delight in his presence. Um, he was building up a faith account in me. He was showing himself strong on my behalf so that when hard things would come, and believe me, they did, that I would trust him rather than take matters in my own hands. I was just teaching last Friday night in the book of Acts. that We'll be teaching uh, Acts chapter 12, I think, or 13. I'm not sure which, uh, 13, I think, this week. Um, this coming Friday night, uh, the Apostle Paul got saved started sharing Jesus right away, as I'm sure you're doing, Jesse. Um, we dig into the Old Testament scriptures to prove that Jesus was the Christ. Um, but for three years, 
from the moment he got saved, he would be in the Arabian wilderness, the, the Syrian Arabian wilderness, not, not Saudi Arabia. And Jesus would appear to him there and teach him face to face, personally. Three years must have seemed like forever. Now, when we consider that his ministry in Antioch began 11 years after that, what I'm saying is that it took 14 years for even the great apostle Paul to be ready for the ministry that God had called him to. All of that to say, Jesse, don't be impatient. He's not taking a long time. This is this is a love affair. This is a relationship that's just developing. And what I would like to see you do, Jesse, is just spend all your time not worrying about what you're going to do, but who you're with. Spend your time with your Bible open. Spend your time walking and talking with Jesus. Uh, be with Jesus everywhere. You go take him everywhere, whether it's work or if you have a family, Jesse. Um, uh, sit down with them and invite Jesus to be right in the middle uh, and, and, and open your Bibles and just delight in the work that he's doing. Now, Jesse, one other thing. I think when I hear people that are uh, this impatient, and I, and I mean that in a good sense in this, this particular context, uh, it's because there is a calling, and God's probably given you some hints about where you're going. But remember, we walk by faith and not by sight. And what that means is you've got to trust Jesus for where you're going rather than knowing where you're going or what you're going to do. I tell this to every young Christian and I tell this to every one of my pastors. If you are with Jesus every day, if you're following him every day, then a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, ten years from now, twenty-five years from now, you will be in exactly the place he wants you to be. And that's what he wants you to do. He's teaching you in your two years as a believer just to be with him, to trust him. Give him chances to show you that he's trustworthy. And walk with him every day. And you'll end up right where he wants you to be. It will be impossible, Jesse, to miss his perfect, pleasing and acceptable will. So don't get impatient. Just serve the Lord. And by the way, while you're serving Him, share Him with people. If you really are anxious, excited about what God is going to do for you, well, be busy about God's work even now. And the way you do that is to tell people about Jesus. You know, Jesse, for me, uh, and I'm, I'm extending this answer because we're coming up to the end of the first half of the program, um, everywhere I go, um, this morning at the gym, um, Paul is even more out there than I am. Everywhere we go, we're looking for an opportunity. We're, we're, we're hoping that God is going to open a door to talk to people. There's this really, really buff guy in the gym today, black guy. I mean, he was really buff, lean and cut, and I'm just thinking, oh my goodness, if I had arms and shoulders like that. And, you know, you want to talk to people. Everybody has headphones on now, and they're listening to music. So I just walked up to him and said hi, and, and he took his headphones off. And I said, you know, I'm, I, I'm glad you're here. 
Because now I understand people keep getting us confused. They look at your arms and your shoulders, and then they look at mine, and they think we're brothers. And he laughed. He said, I hate when that happens. I said, yeah, I know, but... And, he, and we just laughed. And I was waiting for an opportunity. Now, he didn't give me one, but, but I was able to say, you know, man, God bless you. His name was Troy. You can pray for Troy. I said, God bless you, Troy. And, and more often than not, when I see an opportunity like that, God's prepared the way. And what we want to do is take advantage of that. So, Jesse, as excited as you are to know what the future holds, I think Jesus is more excited to show you what today holds. So don't wait to do stuff. Just serve the Lord. Serve in your church. Get involved in whatever they're doing. Fall in love with your Bible. Devour it. And I promise you that at just the right time, you will know exactly what it is that he wants you to do. Very, very important. And Jesse, I'll be praying. 340-9585 for your live calls. Um, let me see how much time I've got left. I don't think I have time to answer a question. Nope, we're inside about a half a minute. Uh, I want to remind you again that uh, tonight here at Calvary Chapel, we're going to be in Second Samuel chapter 2. David finally becomes the king. After 10 to 12 years of hiding in the caves from Saul, Saul is dead. And David becomes the king, at least the king of the tribe of Judah. And Jesse, for you, he's still got seven more years before he's the king of all Israel. So God is preparing him as he's preparing you. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Send Him for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back. I guess it is the Lord's will because we're still here. 340-9585. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. Here is a question from Manny. He says, Is John MacArthur a cessationist? If so... Does that make him a false teacher? Uh, Manny, he is a cessationist. For those of you in the audience who don't know what that means, it means that he does not believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. Uh, in fairness to John, he would uh, say that the sign gifts are not for today. The gift of tongues is not for today. Uh, miracles are not for today. Those kind of things. Uh, he is a committed cessationist. Uh, he has a lot of company. Uh, it's my opinion, Manny, and that's all it is, that a lot of these people who are sensationists are um, overreacting to the abuse of the spiritual gifts in the church. You know, the churches in the United States are like the church in Corinth. Um, we, we do things motivated by our flesh. We do things for to get excited, to, to, to stir our emotions. And most cessationists simply... Simply don't want to. Uh, uh, I mean, they want to avoid uh, any possibility of being connected with anything like that. So yes, he is a cessationist. Now, that does not make him a false teacher. 
Um, he is a thoughtful man. He is a credible scholar. Um, except for two issues. One is the gifts that we're talking about, and the other is uh, his Calvinism. Um, uh, he is as good a Bible expositor, New Testament expositor, as as we have alive today, I think. Um, but uh, he's not a false teacher. Um, it's just he, False teachers are only identified as false teachers if they deny the character and the nature of God or they pervert that character. And John MacArthur is a man who is uh, trustworthy. You've you got to be able to, to um, pick apart what he's saying. you gotta, you got to know what you believe. Um, but he is not a false teacher by any stretch of the imagination. hope that helps you. Uh, let's go to Cindy in San Antonio on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I really enjoyed Monday night uh, with, with um, Mama Paula teaching it. It's the book of Peter's just absolutely <laughs> amazing. I have Great. a question. I'm perplexed about uh, chapter 3, 1 Peter, uh, verse 19 through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. Then it goes on about, um, you know, about the people in Noah's time that disobeyed. But do you think, was he preaching to them, and could any of them repented? Or what was he doing between the time he was crucified and resurrected? I'll, I'll uh, listen on the radio, okay? Thank you very much. Thank you, Sandy. Appreciate the question. Uh, there, there's no notion of a second chance here. Now, um, when we we hear preaching, we automatically think that somebody's declaring the gospel. Jesus wasn't declaring the gospel when he descended into the lower parts of the earth. We also get some information from Ephesians, uh, chapter four, where it says that he who ascended. Uh, also descended in the lower parts of the earth and set the captives free or led captivity captive. So what happened, Cindy, was that um, in that time between his death and resurrection, uh, he descended into the lower parts of the earth. Uh, Luke chapter 16 gives us uh, a great picture of what that was all about. There was a, a place called Paradise or Abraham's Bosom. Uh, there was a big gulch, and then there was on the other side of that gulch, there was uh, a place of torment. And so what uh, Jesus would have done is he would have descended into the lower parts of the earth and declared victory. That's really important. By coming to set the captives free, though they were in paradise, paradise isn't heaven. They weren't with Jesus because Jesus hadn't yet made a way. Um, he declared victory. This was no gospel. It's not like uh, they had another chance. Uh, their their eternal fate was sealed, um, and Jesus was simply declaring victory. I, I love thinking about this particular um, moment because um, imagine Father Abraham and Moses and David and all of the Old Testament heroes that we read about uh, in Hebrews chapter 11. Um, uh, imagine all of those people, and suddenly there would be a great light. Now, Jesus' announcement would have been preceded almost certainly by angels, and in particular, probably Gabriel would have been uh, down there to, to herald Jesus' coming. The ground, I'm sure, would have begun to shake. The darkness would have been filled with this enormous, wonderful light, and suddenly it would have been there, the goal of their salvation, Peter says. 
the object of their affection, and he's there. And his declaration, uh, wasn't preaching a Bible study, his declaration was nothing more than a victory declaration over death. Um, I'm sure the people in torment, uh, because they have, Luke 16 says they have the ability to hear what's going on and see what's going on while they're in torment in Abraham's bosom, they would have seen all of those who believed, those who are justified by faith before Jesus' incarnation, they would have been able to see all of those be taken into glory. And they would have remained and have remained in torment. So, uh, again, no second chance. Uh, He wasn't um, bragging. He was just declaring victory. Oh, death, where is thy sting? And maybe just a, a nod to all of them. I loved you. You, you don't have to be in torment. You didn't have to miss. But because you wouldn't believe. Think about this too, Cindy. He would have looked at Judas. I had a question today, uh, just face to face with somebody, and said, "Well, well, did Judas lose his salvation?" There is apparently a Bible teacher on the YouTube who's saying Christians can lose their salvation and their they're using Judas as uh, as an example. Um, but Judas, Jesus said, was the son of perdition, doomed to destruction from before the beginning of time. So if he was a son of the devil, he never had salvation. He was with Jesus. He was close to salvation. Judas actually did miracles with the other 11. But he never believed. He never wanted what God wanted. He only wanted what he wanted. Maybe he would have looked at Judas. Maybe he would have looked at Judas at that moment and said, it didn't have to be. It just didn't have to be. You know, I think about that, Cindy, all the time when people reject Jesus. Your life doesn't have to be filled with pain. Your life doesn't have to end where it's headed. And that victory declaration in the center of the earth, a place called the abyss, the Greek word is the abuso, that victory celebration um, is something they all would have had to witness. It would have broken their hearts knowing their fate was, fate was sealed. Here's a question from Jeffrey. Why doesn't God stop the evil in this world? I know he loves us, but he lets bad things happen. Well, Jeffrey, whenever I get a question like this, My first instinct is to say, well, why are we blaming God for the bad things that happen? God has never done anything bad. It's not God's fault that humans sin. It's not God's fault that people kill one another. It's not God's fault that there's disease in the world. That wasn't the world he created. He created a world that was perfect. And yet we humans mess it up, and yet we blame God because he doesn't stop bad things from happening. You know he loves you. You said that in your question, but the way we love him back is by trusting him. By trusting him. Why do we believe that God owes us a world without trouble? Now, on the other side of this question, Jeffrey, is that what you are asking is going to happen. 
maybe spend some time in your Bible tonight reading Isaiah chapter 60 through the end of the, the book, chapter 60 through 66, and read about the kind of world that Jesus will rule and reign over in the millennium. Read about that world. Because while not a perfect world like the one he created, it will be a redeemed creation. And we will all be forced to live under the justice, the perfect justice of of God. So why do we blame God for the evil that men does? I, I just... It's hard for me to understand the thinking. A day's coming when he's going to stop it all. We call that the Great Tribulation, culminating in the day of the Lord when Jesus sits his feet on the Mount of Olives and it splits in two, and he destroys his enemy with a word. He's going to stop all of the evil. But according to Peter, the reason he doesn't do it right now is because he's patient unwilling that any should perish. In other words, there are people still appointed for salvation. One day the last Gentile is going to get saved and then the church is going to be out of here. But Jesus is so patient, he's going to wait for that very last one. And unfortunately, the, the little G God of this world is the one who seems to be in control. Now, not over the sovereign power of God, but God is using the enemy, the devil, to accomplish his will, and his will is Jesus' return. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That day is coming when there won't be any more evil in this world. One other thought here, Jeffrey. I often get this question from an unbeliever, and when I do, especially if it's a face-to-face conversation, when I get to look into somebody's eyes, well, if God is a God of love, why doesn't he stop all the evil in the world? I'll say, well, tell me about your life. Did you sin yesterday? Did you do anything wrong at all? Did you take God's name in vain? Did you have sex with somebody you're not married to? Did you drink a little too much, smoke a little dope? Did you yell at your wife, yell at your children? Well, yeah, nobody's perfect. Well, if God stopped all the evil that was done yesterday, he'd have had to stop you. You'd be dead and condemned to an eternity in hell. You see, it's an all-or-nothing proposition with the Lord. And we've got to remember that if he stops all evil right now, well, then a whole bunch of people who might think they're saved and really aren't are going to die. So, well, we want Jesus to come. We want him to come now. We want all this evil stopped. We ought to celebrate his patience. You know, the Jesus movement, the Jesus people of the 60s and 70s, they believed Jesus was going to come so quickly. You know, Hal Lindsey wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth, and it really did spark a revival. I mean, everybody was just rapture-ready and rapture-crazy. And if all those people would have been rewarded by the rapture of the church, then this pastor never would have been saved. Because I didn't get saved until 1991. 
So frankly, I'm really glad that Jesus didn't come back earlier. I still have an unsaved son. I love him. He's a great, great man. But his wife, who is lovely, and my grandkids, if Jesus comes today, they're going to be left behind. So I celebrate his patience while struggling with the tension between celebrating his patience and asking, Jesus, come quickly. Why haven't you come? So, Jeffrey, it's not God's job to stop the evil in the world. Let's go to Scott on line one from Shirt. Scott, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. Uh, God bless you and your ministry. I, I just enjoy it so much. Thank you, Scott. Um, I wanted to make a comment. Um, I, actually, this week I've been studying about the, you know, the the accountability question you had earlier, and I wanted to bring up one verse out of Romans 7, verse 9, where Paul says, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. This is the New King James Version, mm-hmm. um, where he says he was alive um, once without the law. Well, that would refer to when he was a child, before he knew the law, or before before he was accountable, is is the way I'm reading that. Um, I just wanted to share that. I, I, maybe you can expound on that. And then there was one other thing I wanted to mention, um, Jesse, the one that um, you, you were speaking about earlier. Um, one mm-hmm. of the things that we do, every um, every time we eat out, we always ask our wait staff if they have a prayer request or if that we could pray with them or for them. And um, I just encourage her to do that as the Lord will reveal. We've had people actually accept Jesus at our table. Um, we've had some that totally reject. We've even had um, on occasion where the wait staff would go and gather others from the restaurant to come and pray with us. Um, during that time, and it's like you said, it's an opportunity. Um, take every every opportunity you can to share Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, Praise the Lord. So anyway, I wanted to I wanted to hang up and listen listen to your response on the radio. Okay. God bless you. Thank brother. you, Scott. You too. Uh, you know, I, I so appreciate people who are willing to take those kind of risks. Uh, Paul and I will often ask our waiter to pray with us. You know, they hand the food down, they're getting ready to go. Is there anything else you want? Well, no, why don't you pray with us and we'll just grab hands and, and pray. Um, it, it, it sometimes open doors, but you know what? We've never had, well, I take that back. I've had one waiter say, no, that's not my thing. Thank you. But he, he took one step back and, and just was very respectfully quiet as we prayed for, for our, our food. Um, but but only one in all these years of doing that. So, um, Scott, thank you for being bold enough to do that. It's not obnoxious. People appreciate it. And when they leave, you can always say, you know, if you ever need prayer for anything, all you got to do is let me know. Now, Paul and I, because of me, not because of her, but we, we end up going to the same places all the time. And uh, so we, we've developed relationships. Now it's it's... Often that people will come to us. Oh, I'm glad you came in today. I was looking for you because I need prayer for this or I need prayer for that. It's wonderful to be known as a man, in Paul's case, a woman who will pray for people who take an interest in their well-being. And 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 I think that's just a wonderful way to witness to the goodness of the Lord. Uh, in Romans chapter seven, verse nine, I think you're reading it just a little bit wrong, Scott, in the sense that I don't think this was. 
um, him referring to himself as a child. I think he's talking more in in general terms about this issue of of sin. Uh, verse 9, I'm going to read it from the NIV, the, the 84 version. He says, Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. So he's talking about uh, thinking he was okay. Remember when he said, that uh, uh, I thought I was faultless carrying the law, but then when I saw thou shalt not covet, um, I knew I was guilty of sin. And in fact, that was just the spirit of God putting his finger right on Saul of Tarsus's heart because he knew he was guilty of, of coveting. So I think what he means is, that is ignorance is bliss. You know, the people that don't know, they haven't heard, um, they're they're okay. Think they think they're fine. So I don't. Th- I think this is more figurative than specific. Um, uh, Paul, um, because of his Jewish background here, because of the context of this passage, he's probably referring to his life as a boy before his bar mitzvah. Uh, that doesn't mean that he didn't know he was a brilliant, brilliant kid. So we don't know how old this was. We know that the bar mitzvah happened when they were 12. Uh, a Jewish boys crossed over into manhood and in a Jewish mindset. And that's what he's attacking here in Romans 7. This is when they became accountable to God. So um, um, you're, you're sort of there, but I don't think it's a specific uh, as his life as a as a, a baby or or a child, he wouldn't even know that he was he was alive. Um, you know, one of the things that I say to our church all the time, because I teach the Bible, I teach it very directly. Scott, uh, accountability is one of the dangers of coming to Calvary Chapel. Paula tells people, if you come to Calvary Chapel, you better be serious about the Word, because every week, as the Bible's taught, we become, isn't it true, more aware of the things that we wish we didn't know. It's sure true for me. I can't tell you how many times people come to our church, they're living together, they got saved, then heard that living together outside of marriage was sin. Well, they were accountable. And that's why in the next verse, Paul goes into um, the, the, the good result. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Remember, now Jews believed that having the law was enough for salvation. And Paul says, no, the law is good because it identifies us as dead people walking around. It, it, it helps us, the law does, to identify our sin and then respond accordingly. And in Paul's case, uh, being a zealous Jew, and you can read his autobiography, it's all spread through all, all of his epistles, Paul really and truly believed that he could one day keep the law perfectly. Jewish um, thought held that if one Jewish male could keep the law perfectly, one day the Messiah would come. And Paul believed he could be that man. He says he was zealous and faultless in the law. Um, Paul believed that he would be that man, and then he saw the commandment, thou shalt not covet, and ooh, the law proved otherwise. So that's what he's talking about there, Scott. Again, thank you very, very much for your faithfulness in sharing Jesus. What a great witness that is. Here is a question from Ed. He said, would you, Pastor Ron, would you please talk about being slain in the spirit? I saw it happen at my church, but it didn't seem right. Was it the power of the Holy Spirit? Ed, you're being discerning here. It was not the power of the Holy Spirit. It's it's counterfeit junk. Um, uh, it didn't seem right to you because it's not 
there is absolutely no place in your scripture at all for the silly practice of being slain in the spirit. Let's go to Lavernia now and talk with Crystal on line, line one. Crystal, thank you for holding. You're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call, and I'll try to make it quick. Uh-huh. Um, so you were just talking about the rapture and, and um, you know, that God wants to wait until the last Gentile is saved. Um, and it made me start thinking, my son is four, almost five, and I'm sure you've had this question before. Um, you know, we are teaching him all about Jesus, but, you know, he's not really grasping it completely yet. So I just wanted to see if you could talk to, about that a little bit. Like, if the rapture were to happen today, do I have security in my heart to know that, you know, my son will make it to heaven? Um, so that's pretty much my question. I'll go ahead and take it um, okay. on the air. Thank you, Crystal. I can do that. And this goes back to the the accountability thing. Uh, you can be absolutely certain, uh, Crystal, that, that your son would go in the rapture. That's when when um, Jesus will call home those who are uh, his, his own. And while your son at four uh, can nod his head, uh, it's very seldom that a four-year-old has the capacity to understand the, the concept of sin and forgiveness. Uh, and ask Jesus, they they can parrot it, but they don't have the concept. But because they're not accountable, they're 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 not aware that what they do is sin. Um, yes, they would go to heaven. Now, when a kid throws a fit, and they, and 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 he or she knows what they're doing wrong is wrong, that doesn't mean that they they have the capacity to confess that as a sin. Uh, your four-year-old likely has no idea what sin is, um, but God will preserve them. Remember the statement from Jonah. Um, Jonah, you're, you're angry because I wanted to save them. I have 120,000 people in Nineveh who don't know their right hand from their left. And he's referring to kids who are um, not accountable yet. So, yes, your son is going to go. And it wouldn't matter if you weren't a believer. So you're doing the right thing. Um, you keep sharing Jesus with him. You keep living your life for Jesus, and um, your son is going to be a, a young man who knows that mommy's Jesus is a Jesus that he wants to have a relationship with. I hope this will help you, too, uh, because you're talking to them and teaching them about the Lord. Um, um, one of the kids that comes into my office and prays every day now, he's uh, 11 years old, I think. But um, uh, this young man gave his life to Jesus at the age of four years old, had a perfect understanding a perfect understanding of what he was doing, got baptized. And, you know, a lot of times we err on the side of grace when kids want to get baptized. But this kid has been aware of of um, Jesus as the Lord and Savior uh, from that day at the age of four till now, 11. Uh, and he he knows his word. He's um, He's being taught. So you keep doing what you're doing, and uh, your son will make his own choice. Um... I don't mean to bum me out with this one, Crystal, but, you know, all of these kids are going to one day make their own choice. They're going to be weaned off mom's faith or dad's faith and make it their own faith. And those tests are good, good things. Thanks for the question, Crystal. Hey, good show today. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. Remember, ladies, tomorrow is the Date Day Edition program. That means beautiful Paula will be live in studio with us to take your phone calls and questions. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll see you tomorrow at 4. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. 
The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4. And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. 